that you're struggling with symptoms of a very clear depression? It, it was it was the crying didn't stop. And now I used to wake up from sleep crying. Now there was the other element that it was a couple of times a day now. Um, sorry, this is tough to share. Do you want to stop and we can pick it up another day? No, let's go. I can type it and you can read it. I'm going to break down, I know. So basically what you wrote was, I used to stand on the balcony every morning and question whether I should jump off today or not. Yes. You are in a lot of pain. Yes. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Kun, The Journey to Be. My guest today is Wissam, the producer of podcast Mish Ship a podcast that focuses on parenting practices, especially in relation to being in the Middle East. Wissam will share with us today some of his journey, some of his experiences with bullying, emotional neglect, and depression. And he will also give us insight on to how the journey started and how he sees it. I hope you all find it inspirational. Wissam, I'm really interested in interviewing you. We met more than two years ago at the Live Healthy Festival. And I heard bits and pieces of your story, but I know that it's there was a struggle at some point. Mm. And from that came the idea of your podcast, Mishbishipship, that is focusing on maybe child rearing, practicing and discussing some of the difficulties of rearing children in the Arab world. So mm. I wanted, I was really interested to start with how did all of this start? Oof. Well, okay, first of all, I want to say thank you for asking me to join. Uh, and I've, I've, met, I've met a therapist once and she said that I don't need therapy, which I think was good, but a lot of people think was bad. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> I'll get to that in a minute. But it was actually the best three hours of my life because the only thing that she wanted to talk about was me. Yeah. Uh, but before I think we, I just want to um, um, uh, put this out there. You know, I think I'm, I'm not, I'm still, I still know that a lot of what I've been through might not resonate with a lot of people as that's not trauma or that's not sad. I think it's just a, a general message of, of kindness that we all experience things differently based on the environment that we're in. So maybe my story with anybody else living in another country will be like, hey, listen, that's not so bad. Why is he complaining? But that doesn't mean that I'm complaining, I'm sharing. It's uh, emotions that, um, and emotions and thoughts that I experienced the way they happened based on my upbringing and my situation. So they might resonate differently with other people. I think in general, a lot of the, the Eastern cultures um, are insensitive towards uh, any sort of, of any negative emotion. And there's an, or, an overemphasis on uh, look at other people living in so-and-so country and whatever they're going through. So I, I am aware of that and I am, uh, I know that it's not a big thing. I didn't lose any, you know, part of my body or part of my family, but that doesn't mean that the emotions weren't real. And it's just a message of kindness. I am a bit, you know, careful on, on that element, just to put it out there. Um, I don't know if it's, I, I agree with you, but I don't know if it's specific to Eastern cultures because because of my work, I see that. But you know, what's very interesting as you're saying, making this comment Every time I have a client who's sitting in session and they start telling me their story of what they've been through, the first thing they say is, I know it wasn't that bad. I know other mm. people have it worse. I, I think we're yes. all tired <laughs> to think that 
I mean, you have to have had major trauma with a big T to actually mm. earn any kind of compassion. And my response to that is always, it's not a competition. Like we're not yes. as, as to who is having the worst life. Um, certainly is the case. I, I wanted to present that idea before I start as a sort of inviting people to be kind. And it's not that bad. But it's not a competition, certainly. Yes. Certainly. Um, the other thing I just want to touch on is I, I do understand that the older generation, and I mean the whole generation, has went through their own set of, of traumas, their own set of mishaps. Yes. Specifically, you know, Palestine and Iraq and the whole the whole region, actually. I mean, the you whole can't, region. Uh, you can't, I think the only people that you can maybe move aside from the whole equation or, or you know, exempt from the whole equation is, you know, the Gulf, which, which and, and pretty recently, 1970s, 80s onwards. Um, I, I do understand fully that, um, you know, you know, growing up with an overactivated amygdala, being afraid and concerned all the time, you know, not having um, any belief in any sort of any social structure, if it's schooling or education or whatever it is. And, you know, that people's opinion starts to become a religion almost. I mean, not almost, but actual is, Yanni. Um, I do know that they grew up in emotional neglect and they were doing the best they can given the circumstances that they can. I understand all that. I mentioned it beforehand to say that when describing them, I'm not bashing them. I'm just, we're, we're trying to understand what went on and how we can learn from that and how we can develop specifically with ourselves and our children. So just like a blanket apology, I know they have been through a lot. I am not ungrateful. <laughs> no, no. I, uh, it's another thing that, I mean, you know, when you, when you walk into a therapist's office, clients are always very, very wary about telling you about their parents. If you start asking about their family, the first response mm. is, I had a great childhood. My parents are great because they're trying to protect the parents from that therapist who they know is going to attack the parents. But the idea mm. is that we're not here to attack them. We're just here to make you see how they've made mistakes and parents do, do make mistakes. You're a parent. I'm sure you've done mistakes and you continue to do mistakes, but we need to be able to look back and say, okay, this is what went wrong. This is how it affected me. Forgive, forgive yourself, forgive your parents and heal from that and move forward instead of pretending like it never happened. So True. another thing that I wanted to just explain a little bit is just because you mentioned it is the overactivated amygdala. Not a lot. This is very biological, psychological. So can you explain it just so that people understand what we're referring to? Okay, so basically Rain. there are certain centers that process certain things different ways. One specific one, the amygdala, it's located at the base of the brain, is the one that is responsible to analyze every situation and determine whether you, sh you should, as a human being, fight, flight, or freeze. These are the three options that it gives you. Now, the amygdala did not, you know, develop extensively or, you know, evolve and cannot distinguish between a tiger who's trying to eat you, which was the main reason why the amygdala was made for cavemen, and a crying baby, or, you know, your friends not inviting you out uh, to dinner, or it cannot distinguish the difference between the two. So for them, that is a stressful situation, and you should, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. The problem is if when you grow up in an um, environment that is very traumatic, specifically, you know, abusive parents or any, anybody abusive, situations of war, the amygdala is constantly activated. It's on all the time. And when the amygdala is on, it shuts down the majority of your brain, logic is closed, and a lot of other parts of your brain are shut off. And it's dependent specifically on the situation. I'm going to fight. I'm going to freeze. I'm going to fly. 
There are ways, of course, to you know identify an overactivated amygdala, and meditation specifically has been proved to decrease the density of cells in the amygdala area. Uh, for there are ways to deal with that. But if you grew up in an environment that is highly stressful and from a parent who is, you know, an overactivated amygdala, you can easily identify there's a short leash, you're angry all the time, you're afraid all the time. It's worst case scenario on every single thing. Even like, can I have a glass of water? You're going to drop it and break it. That's an overactivated amygdala. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be that you grew up in a traumatic experience. It, most of the time, it's just that you grew up in, in a situations where you as a child did not feel safe, whether physically mm. safe or emotionally safe. So let's get into it. Now that we Very good. Okay. Another small detail. Okay, I have something that's called highly superior autobiographical memory. It's the opposite of amnesia. It's actually hypernesia. I have that. So basically every memory... Everything that I experienced, it's highly autobiographical. So it's not a photographic memory or something. It's anything that has happened to me, I remember. And I remember clearly who said what, who was wearing what, what time of the day it was, what were, you know, the color of the tablecloth. Memory is not a lane. It's, it's a freaking highway. It's all there. It's etched so clearly, so crisply. I can flip through it like pages and sometimes things just get triggered automatically and the memory is there and the feeling is there, deal with it. And I think this is part of the, this is part, well, it's a blessing. It's, it's a great thing because even if I study something, it's autobiographical. So it does have its benefits and I do utilize it a lot professionally, but it is tough to, to handle specifically in tough childhoods and uh, especially when there's a lot of bullying, there's a lot of, even in social encounters, there is some sort of a, a checklist that I can't help but create. I can always flip the pages and start saying, but this happened this and this happened this. And I know every single situation has its own circumstances, but for me, they're all legend. And it's tough being me, but it's also a lot of fun. And I think I wanted to mention this because this was part of why things were difficult. And I think building on that, my first memory... And it's, I think, um, a defining moment in a lot of things that, uh, that were to come after that was when I was four years old. My, so, so we're three brothers born three years apart. Okay. Um, so my, my older brother, I was four years old. He was five. Uh, he got hit by a car. And actually, he didn't get hit by a car. He hit a car. So he was running to cross the road. He hit the car that was just pulling out of the parking. And he broke the driver's arm, the impact, the force of impact. And it was a, it was a pistachio colored Buick, 1980s, you know, these big metal American cars. He ran so fast, the door broke in and the driver's arm was broken. He was in the intensive care unit for six, seven days or whatnot. He recovered, everything was okay. But that memory was the first memory. I remember clearly four years old, standing there, brother running, getting hit by a car. We ran upstairs, told my, my parents who were having, you know, the afternoon siesta, they jumped up a guy who you know he was like the, the car the guy who was driving the car put him in the car and drove off to the only hospital in Abu Dhabi at that time so m my mother was um, more or less she was I mean, well, not my mother again the whole generation was more or less very impulsive in the way that they react indeed with all situations if you don't really uh, take a minute to to analyze the situation try to understand how everybody is feeling try to decide what's the best course of action. So everything is on the spot, impulsively. This is how I feel now. This is how I should react now. There's an emotional buildup that I don't know what to do with, and this is how I'll react. So in the impulsive approach to everything in life that the older generation had, 
an offset of that or you know a result of that was that my brother was able to to take uh, you know the empathy the kindness the patience the tenderness any positive characteristic a person can have and i was left with everything else and that was again it was very impulsive i'm not i'm not blaming anybody but this is what i remember at least and i'll be clear on that because children have different mothers mm. so i'm not saying my, my mother was a bad mother i'm saying she was a bad mother to me so to my brother she was the best one in the world and he can vouch on that but the dynamic was cast the dynamic was cast and that actually identified the way that a lot of the dealings after that throughout my childhood into my you know my adolescence there was always a lot of anger there was a lot of impatience there was a lot of uh, you, you know you're a failure you're not going to work there was sarcasm there was lack of um, you know there was emotional neglect your your feelings weren't uh, important anything you ever and, and you, you, you can keep on going but we're talking about consistent years of that attitude where very clearly an alternative was being presented and as a result you had the model child with the good grades and the kindness and the love and the tenderness on the on the one hand and then on the other hand you had the bad grades the loud voice the bad mouth the bad habits and you can't really say is it like is it nurture is it nature is this this is this that but that was cast خلاص that was set this is it you're four go on until you're 18 that's the life that you're living you know in fact um, a lot of things that happen and and that's usually what we call like family dynamics is that within within a family system you have roles being assigned so mm. you're going to be the good child you are going to be a bad child and these are done kind of unconsciously or you are going to be the defiant or one is the emotional container because they are able to contain emotions everybody else in the family does it so you find little roles like that we find ourselves in little roles like that and whenever you are within that family system you find yourself falling automatically into that role and yeah. then when you move out of the family system in your relationships you find yourself in dynamics where you in end up role. with that yeah. role Yeah. But I think you know, that that more or less also identified the, the the main demon that I have that I fight with until this day is the question is whether I'm liked or not. That's like that's a defining thing. That's I mean consciously now before it was impossibly but consciously now I do know that that's the ultimate question that I need answered. And and it and, and that extended that dynamic like you said it extended. So I was bullied in school and To be honest, my brother was also bullied in school. He wasn't any better because he was overprotected, so his social skills were underdeveloped. But I think that the, the fact that he had that relationship with my mother is what made him pull or push through all these tough situations that he went through. There was an episode that we recorded a while back that was based on Gabor Mate and um, another guy, Newfield. I forgot his first name. There's a book. It's called Hang On To Your Kids. And it says about the importance of you know being an, at- an attached parent to your kid it would protect them from all the challenges that they would have f- from life. So it wouldn't protect them from being bullied, but knowing that they have one loving parent in their lives would not let the bullying affect them. But, you know, even even throughout summers, we used to go to Lebanon and to Syria. There was also a lot of bullying there because we were sitting ducks to our cousins. You know, they were, they, they lived in the streets and they bought from the, you know, they had neighbors and friends and a strong social dynamic for they were much more 
you know, capable and we were from, you know, Khalij, we had our nice shoes and nice clothes and, you know, we had our playstations, but, you know, we were so gullible, it was easy to, but we were sitting ducks for the majority of our childhood in the summers, so there was turmoil from, from kids in school and then turmoil in the summer from cousins and when things got a bit heated, my mother would always come to their defense, which was like, we're the victims here, you know, and there's a political analogy over there somewhere. But that, 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 that went on, right? That's, that's consistent uh, self-doubt in my own personal capabilities. There was always, in, you know, you're going to be poor, you're going to be a failure, nobody's going to love you. And there was always that constant messaging that is ingrained with your own personal voice now. And again, demons that you have to fight all the time. Uh, things uh, considerably improved when we went to university again, because you are... Pff, you Pardon. are, oh my God. And that's when you start to, to see it. slightly feel a bit better about yourselves. But the same social dynamics were always there. You always felt left out, uninvited. And sometimes it wasn't that, but that's how you understood it. Mm-hmm. So I graduated, came back, uh, worked with my father, which was again, again, it's always going to go back to the family, right? So it's like a king black hole. They just suck you in, I think. Al Pacino, just when you think you are out, they pull you back in. <laughs> um, I worked with him for a year, which was miserable. He had a very tough way of thinking about a lot of stuff, including money. So he was very careful on just giving me barely enough and then asking me at the end of the month, how much did you spend? And there was just a lot of control. What time do you wake up? What do you eat? What do you wear? Where do you go? Where do you come from? And it was just so much of, of an issue. I left him. I found a job. It was the only job I ever got after that, which was for Procter & Gamble. I worked with them for three years, but there was another defining moment in that when I left him. And and, I mean, they paid me six times what he did. And it was the only time in my life that I ever had money. Like I've never had money except those three years because I I came back to him. This is spoiler alert. And then got married and then got kids. But that's the only time that I didn't look into my bank account. There was always something there. You know, that feeling of financial stability i don't know <laughs> anyways i've i've only I'll just had a i had a whiff of it once but anyways <laughs> i remember when i first joined i had a, i had a manager and we had we had some director coming in from i don't know some global regional office and he said i'd like you to present because you're charismatic and i swear to god i kept looking behind me for the for the next couple of minutes and in the end he said malak ibni What's wrong? And I said, sorry, are you talking to me? <laughs> maybe that's the first time I was ever complimented for anything remotely related to me, you know? And my mind could not comprehend that he thinks I'm charismatic. And I think for the majority of my employment with that company, I kept thinking, Adam is keen, but hook Ali, you know? He's, he's, I mean, he has a very wrong idea of what's going on. I mean, this guy, I, I, I don't believe, you know, somebody who's that high up in a company is that, you know, blind. Yeah. That's actually what I wanted to ask you is, how did you feel about yourself during that time? So obviously you, I mean, from what you're saying, there wasn't a lot of self-confidence. No, there was nothing. It was all, it was, there was nothing at all. It was, it was a very bad negative feeling towards myself. I. I genuinely hated myself. I, something I struggle with until today. Again, messages that you hear from the older generations. I genuinely thought I was the source of my parents' misery and that 
Because you hear words like, why is everybody happy with their kids except me? You know, there, like, there's all these yes. narratives. I genuinely think bad things will happen to me because I don't deserve them. Yeah. Whenever I'm faced with, with, with any sort of problem, like I just got laid off a while back, but I found another job. But I got laid off a while back and the first thought was my mother's prophecy is being fulfilled. Kalas. And I, and I still struggle with this a lot. And at nights, at nights it's, it's more difficult, which is an indication that I should sleep earlier than I should. It will, I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's ever easy. And, and even when, when you remember them and you're conscious of them, you struggle with them. And I know that, and I'm sure you know that. A lot of patients come and they say, what, what's going on? Why do I feel this way? What, what? And I think, you know, there's a lot of unburdening happening there. But let's... It's miserable. I mean, yes, we were we were living in, in comfortable, nice houses. I had my own bedroom. I had nice shoes and branded clothes. And we traveled uh, the world every year. And we went to the best of universities. But something I always like to say, the shoes I wore as a kid never helped me in any problem I had as an adult. Yeah. The questions I ask myself are direct interactions and involvements I had with my parents uh, and words of, you know, Anything I've heard from anybody, any of the mediums that bullied me, which was many, which was many. And then that, I think, invites the question is whether whether maybe, you know, again, maybe you can't go, you can't say maybes, but maybe the defining dynamic between my mother and I was, you know, like you said, it just went into everything after that. Well, it goes into everything because this is that's why we call it the most formulating relationship. That's why psychologists are so interested in it because you're born, we are the only species that's born completely helpless for years. Mm. So you are born and the one, the only thing that you are aware of as a newborn is that if this big guy and this woman don't take care of you, you're dead. So your survival depends on them. So the relationship that you establish with those, with this caretaker, whoever that is, is, mm. is, is the relationship and starts to um, dictate your relationship with the world. Is this a safe place? Are my needs going to be met? Am I respected? Am I loved? Am I cared for? Am I all of these things? Or um, do, do, do I feel like I'm, I'm completely, I'm on my own? And, and that's what happens in the first few years of, of a child's life. And based on that, you see the relationship with the world. So you, you develop a relationship with the world that's either very, very scared or uh, I don't feel safe or I don't feel that I'm protected. That's neglected children or children who are overprotected. You see parents are sitting there and their kid, if they move, oh, no, don't do this. Don't do that. So that mm. also gives the, the child what the child is understanding is that the, the world is a dangerous place. I can't go out there. I can't explore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's fear-based. It's, it's, it's uh... a balance. But yeah, of course, the relationship that you have with your mother is the relationship, and your father, obviously, but your mother more, is the yeah. relationship, is, is a quite a defining. It's not the only defining relationship, but it's one of the defining relationships in your life. Yeah. And And... and... I see, like, human beings always look for what's missing. And I think, kind of growing up, yeah, I'm just growing up, but see, even, even the, the only experience I had with the multinational Luhayek, I was independent, I was living on my own, had my own apartment, had my own car, had my own income. I had, I, I had, like, a lot of things that anybody around me at my age, and I was barely 22, 23 at that time. 
But the one thing that was missing is, which I felt was missing at least, and again, that it's the appreciation of my parents. And again, and I'm sure you can relate because we were talking about things they do, that they always compliment the, the one who isn't there and they always compliment you in front of their friends, which you barely heard. But you always, you always follow that. You always follow that. You want them to come and say, you know what? You're a good kid, you know? Well, I think given that my experience with my father in the first year of employment was terrible, I said to myself, now with this multinational experience, I can come back and I'll be the knight on the white horse with a shining armor who will blow him away and he'll be so happy and all my problems in life will be satisfied, which was the biggest mistake of my life. If you want to come, <laughs> you come and point your finger somewhere, I'll say, this is it. And it happened coincidentally with uh, the time I got married, uh, you know, you were under the microscope and telescope and magnifying glass and anything that gives any better vision, <laughs> stethoscope, all the time on every single movement and interaction. Critique was very big. Why is your daughter's underwear unironed? Why are you looking at my daughter's underwear? Like, خلاص, you know, and no, it's a fucking underwear. It's, it's not a t-shirt. I could get a t-shirt. I wouldn't get underwear. Like, why would I want to, you know what I mean? Like, and my it was, it was, that, so I can it, it, it was, yeah, I don't it was, it either. it was constant on, I'm half one, tizna, sorry. And and it, it 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 kept on going and and there was and also like financially that whole period uh, let's say 2012 2018 there were bust after bust after bust uh, there was a lot of challenges work was miserable throughout the whole phase uh, but to even add things and make it a bit worse is that you had someone who walks into work every day with a big frown on their face miserable and angry at everything that is going on with their life but the only, you know, medium of, of release they have is trying to make things work. You don't know how to work. It is all your fault. This multinational you worked for didn't teach you anything. If I had a donkey, he would have done. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but accumulatively, they all come down to at least three or four sentences of these. Yes. <laughs> in, in the light of everything, in the light of, again, the social element, the, the questions and it's it's again it's not intentional i understand they don't want your misery and they're doing it out of love and i understand all that but i'm just talking about the effect that it has the way that it makes you feel about your own reality and i think i was i was illusioned for a very long for a very long time and this went on i think for a comfortable four or five years i was illusioned on a number of things because you know as a human being you always have certain things that you depend on to feel that you're grounded, like you're sitting on a stool with four legs, right? So you have your social life, you have your 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 wife and your kids, you have your parents, you have your work. Don't worry, everything is under control. And maybe I was illusioned. I did have a, a social life, but I never, again, I never felt welcomed. I always felt out of place. I always felt um, uh, like someone who was tagging along. And I always felt that. It was never clear. Nobody ever said anything that indicated otherwise, but I always felt that, you know, yalla, I was tagging along. Yalla, خلاص, ma. We know him since high school. Who am a good man of nafsal? He's in the same city. We'll all get along together. And this went this went on until a defining moment happened. Um, and this was the beginning of the beginning of the end. Well, the beginning of the beginning before the end. Because, because you went down and then you went up. So it was the beginning of the down. I don't know what you want to call it. 
I'm not big on labels. I mean, you know that. Yeah. But, uh, no. but I want to take you back to some point that you made is, is that what that constant criticism does, especially at a young age when you have one, one golden child and one who's not that much of a golden child or whatever. Mm. But that's, that makes you think what you're describing is that constant feeling of I'm not good enough. But, and, but that also there was this constant trying to escape that feeling by saying, by trying, if I do one better, if I go to work for my dad and I do well, if I get this job, if I get these grades, if I get married and I have kids, like, there's something that I'm going to do that is going to make them see that I'm enough or what I'm doing is enough. And then, mm. and then it doesn't happen. It does happen. You, you mentioned critique. Yes, critique is one of them, but blame is also another. Blame, of, of, course, of course, yeah. Okay. Not only are you, you criticized because, you know, your life is wrong, but you are the reason why my life is wrong. What's this life? I'm miserable on myself and on you. It's not that. But that was the conversation that we had before we pressed record, which is basically... <laughs> Everybody in this side of the world is so enmeshed. It's like you have no mm. self. You don't, you're, you're, they see you as an extension, especially the parents. They see you as an extension of them. So you are a reflection of me, which is not true. I'm not yeah. a reflection of you. I'm just me. So, yeah, I, 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 I know, I think it's very important that we have these conversations. And yeah. um, I think all philosophies and all religions and all, you know, ways of thinking, even the new modern age, yoga, meditation, mindfulness approach is all more or less trying to say the same thing is that you as a human being need to elevate from your impulsive thinkings and teachings and, and, and whatever it is and look at things from a different perspective. And yes, definitely being having that, that idea that you belong to your parents and your kids belong to you and we are all an extension of each other and what other people do directly impact me and my and how I'm viewed, I think is one of the biggest problems in in in, in our societies today. Oh, well, again, I'm not saying that the West is better. Again, this is like oh, okay, no, we're saying look at us and let's us improve in a vacuum, which isn't possible. But let's assume that. So 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 2015, 2015, 2015. There was um, I don't want to give much details, but there was an incident that happened. It's a social incident. Social incident uh, involving a couple of friends. Uh, my grandmother says, she says, she says, travel reveals shoes and people. Right? So if you want to know you have good shoes, travel with them and you'll know. If you want to know you have you know, good friends, travel with them. So it involved travel, involved a couple of friends. And there was um, extensive public. Okay. What I experienced, that's. So keep our biases in check. What I experienced uh, was um, extensive public uh, bullying. This was someone who was 34 years old, right? I saw a therapist later. This was the incident that instigated everything. But I'll mention this here, is that when I was telling what happened to the therapist, she kept asking me, how old are you in the story? And I said, I'm 34. And she said, how old were your friends in the story? And I said, they were 34. She said, okay, close your eyes. I close my eyes. She says, okay, tell me what happened. And I'll explain to her the incidences. And she says, okay, when was this? And I say, seven months ago. 
her she could she thought I was reliving a childhood trauma. Misham said she did not believe that at 34 I was going through this. <laughs> you know, she was doing this whole uh, I don't know what you call it, ESL something thing, whatever. Close your eyes and but then she's like, sorry, but I, I want to understand this. This happened seven months ago with you. I said, yes. She said, I don't believe that. <laughs> you know, I would have believed it if they were 12, maybe 13. <laughs> but there was, there was constant public bullying, uh, ridicule in front of strangers. But hey, my bad, if I don't know what was going on, I think I, 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 can, I, can, I can understand what was going on. I don't want to say it because it's presumptuous. But... It was it was constant and there was mixed messages or number of friends. These were people that there was a lot of contradiction. There was a lot of constant like things that were going on. And in the last day there was shouting and there was insults being thrown. And this sort of thing happened and it was like a blur. Were you on the uh, family or were you on the trip just the guys? Yeah, just the guys. We were on a fundraising uh, cycling challenge that happened in uh, in Amsterdam, and it, I, and the interesting thing is we didn't go together. Like, I signed up for it and then found out later on that they did. But ever since the very first day when we got to the airport, they said everyone is sitting alone, and I sat alone. And then later found them sitting next to each other, and I just neglected it. I said, you know, but then it went on onto every single interaction for the whole period of 11 days amongst the other group of people that kept on going on 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 in many shapes or forms and again what i experienced yimkin i'm very biased yimkin haram they weren't like this there's something wrong in the way that i analyze situations i am you know fully willing to admit that but that that was that was my experience and i can give specific if i was ever you know faced or challenged i can give Specific examples of what was said, where and when, and I know what they were wearing. It's, it's in there. But so when I came back, and it, and it happened, I came back, my, my wife and kids weren't, uh, I had three kids then, I have four now. But my wife and kids weren't here, they were in their summer holidays. And I know it was, I remember the very first morning I woke up after I arrived, you know, opened my eyes, looked in the ceiling, I was thinking, what the fuck was that? I know it was just everything was just going through my head so fast and it was just reliving moments and instances. It's like movies sort of. But I, 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 I didn't, I just, I didn't understand. I didn't understand anything. And that was, the, and that was the only thing that I spoke about for a year. I was not able to process what was going on. Um, and I think. It's like a domino effect because everything came crashing down right after. You started remembering your childhood. You started remembering your mother. You started remembering the bullying. You started remembering, you know, the tough time you're having at work, the, the lack of support that was coming from many people in the family. And and again, our, our, our cultures today, and not because the Western culture is a better culture, have something that's very, very uh, terrible is that people don't know how to listen. You can't talk about anything without being ridiculed, mocked, or somebody brings in their own trauma to the story. Because I was going through something very paramount. Uh, my whole existence was in doubt. And the ultimate question of whether I'm liked in my life has been clearly answered. You're not. We hate you. It was. There was no way around that. And then what happened is I started to um, uh, have uh, crying episodes out of the blue. 
you know, driving in the car to Dubai, I start crying. I don't know, it just happens. Um, and it started to happen, you know, every every now and then. So I started to schedule on a calendar what are the days that it's happening to see whether, you know, the crying incidents will increase or decrease. But then they started decreasing. It was like, you know, six days apart, six days apart, five days apart, four days apart, three days apart. And then it started happening where you have these uncontrollable bouts of crying happening without any... And it was not like, you know, a buildup. It was just, ah, there you go, cry. It's not like, you know, when you cry, you feel the cry coming. It was no feeling the cry coming. It was eyes and tears and boogers and, you know, the uh, baby sort of thing. Um, and then there was, uh, there was an incident that happened um, in school, dropping off my daughter. I was dropping off my daughter to school, um, and when I was taking her up the stairs, I saw a mother who was talking to a child in the bathroom, you know, wagging her finger, crossed eyebrows, and she was talking to him in a bad way. And I, igno I ignored it. I, 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 I remember I said, Amahlik walad, you know, take it easy on the child. But there was a very, there was an incident that you see happen, you know, any mother talk to any child. And what was interesting is that usually uh, dropping off the kid to, to the class, there was a stairs that takes you up one way, then you have to walk across the corridor and take the other stairs then. Uh, but I don't know why that day I was, I came, we came a bit late or we came a bit early, the stairs was empty. So I took the same stairs down because it was empty. And by that time, the mother had the child in a bathroom stall and you can hear her slap him. And you can hear him crying. Yeah. And that triggered me. Uh, but I was, to be clear, I wasn't slapped with my mother's hands. I was slapped with her words. But it, it, it triggered me. I was... It triggered me, I mean, even thinking about it now. It's, uh, I made it a point to speak to the mother. And I was, I, was, I was walking in front of, the, you know, I was a madman walking across the front of the school, back and forth, back and forth. There was something going on very bad. And then she walked out um, and she was sitting down having a chat with her friends. Uh, and I kept pacing back and forth, back and forth until she finished and she was walking to her car and I followed her, but I didn't want to be confrontation. I said, sorry, did you slap your kid? And she said, yes. And I don't know who did the talking, but the voice, the words were coming out of my mouth. And I said that he'll always question this all his life. Um, and he'll always, and you, you think it was, you know, a, a moment that passed, but this is not the moment that passed. And he'll always question why didn't his mother love him. But uh, the answer will be is because she didn't love herself. Something on that capacity came out. Um, uh, um, and I was, I, was, I was a mess for the whole day. I was a mess for the whole day. I, I couldn't go to work. I was driving back and forth. I was, I was rambling. I called, every, I called my brother. I called my wife. I called, I, I, it was just, there was, there, was, it was a, there was something that was not right. That, I mean, that day was just all over the place. But that's when my brother, and it was coincidentally that the other brother was getting married and we were going to, um, to Beirut for the wedding. So the brother who lives in Lebanon said, you know, uh, I know a therapist you can visit because someone he knows went through something. Uh, and he said, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll go, go just give her a chat. Just have, have a chat. Let's, let's see what's going on. Uh, but that, that period was, I mean, it was one of the darkest period in my life because in my life, so far it's only one life. Well, several because I'm reborn. But anyways, um, I, I used to wake up and the first thought that came to my head is why didn't I die in my sleep? I, I must say that the only ray of sunshine in all this was my wife. I must mention it. Um, there was no judgment. There was no questions. There was nothing. There was just patience. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was no questions. 
No suggestions. Why don't you do this? I think you, there was nothing. It was just a shoulder there. And, a, you know, I think that's confidently the best thing that has ever happened in my life is that, which is my wife, my marriage. But Do everything else was... Sign that you're struggling with symptoms of a very clear depression? Yeah, yeah. But look, um, it, it, was, it was... The crying didn't stop. Um, and now I used to wake up from sleep crying. Now there was the other element that was a couple of times a day now. Um, sorry, this is tough to share. Do you want to stop and we can pick it up another day? No, let's go. The next one is a tough one. Next sentence is tough. Give me a minute. Yeah, just give me a minute. I can type it and you can read it. Yeah, let's do that. I don't think it's going to come out. We don't have to put it. I mean, it's your story. You share what you feel comfortable with. Yeah, I'm comfortable. No, no, I'm comfortable in sharing, but I don't think it's going to come out. I'm going to break down. I know. There you go. So basically what you wrote was, I used to stand on the balcony every morning and question whether I should jump off today or not. Yes. You are in a lot of pain. Yes. Okay. Give me a minute, okay? Okay. All right, so that was the worst. It gets better. Yes. <laughs> but just reliving it is... Type. So the therapist, we went, we saw the therapist three sessions. Um... And in the end of it, she said, um, I've never met anybody who had such clarity on, what was, on what's going on in their life. Yeah. You know exactly what happened, where, when, what you were feeling, what you experienced, why it happened. It's clear. There's no question. So I, think, I think what she meant is that I can't help you more than it was. You don't need therapy. But that's what I understood. Do you think you wanted therapy at the time? I think, I think I wanted, I don't think, I, I wanted to, see, I understand what was going through, what I was going through, but I wanted someone to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we, it's not a click of a button or a, a Lego piece that you take it in and put it out and it's, if I put it um, in a different place, it will work. It's a process. It's a it's a process. And she just very loosely said, "I can't help you. I suggest take walks every day, get into physical." Because she knew that I, you know, like I didn't. Um... And this is linked a lot, by the way, to something we talked about. I don't think we have time to mention, but my weight fluctuates with these events. Yes. Because when we went to Amsterdam, I was the lightest I ever was in my life. But then right after that, it was thirty kilos on for for every year. The one thing that I shared with her is that, you know, my mother used to always describe me as a person who smells the roses because I was, you know, despite everything, I was, I always took my time and uh, could always find the good things. And I told her that I can't, I can't find it in me to laugh anymore. And she, she, I mean, 
again, given that we lived in different countries, uh, the interaction was very um, quick. Try to find a way to laugh again, get into, you know, watch their favorite comedy shows, get into exercises. And she mentioned a few like these quick fixes. Or not, well, not quick fixes, but things that you should do that over time will make you feel better. But they seem, they seem quick on this. But I mean, it's challenging opening the door and going for a walk when you're feeling everything. But yes. she just threw them there. And what happened after that was a coincidence. It was, it was really a coincidence. It was, it was through the whole thing. It was, there were still the, the, the balconies every morning. It, it, it was still there. And there was like the moment of ultimate despair, right? There was... There was خلاص. It was like I said. Woke up in the morning. Ya Allah, lish, ya khiyam, why did I want this? Why did I die in my sleep? And there was. Uh, it was a coincidence. I remember there was a time where, because that time everything religious was out of the window. خلاص. Everything you ever believed in is out of the window. There's nothing there. Um, and just to be clear, I'm a person who went to Hajj. I've been, I've been praying actively since I was 16. We memorized the Quran. There was a lot of religion extensively was because there's that argument that you know these are all symptoms of a lack of iman which i think is very very unfair and if anything will make a person question his you know for another but um, one of these mornings i remember that because i used to do afkar sabah right every morning used to do afkar sabah but that that stopped a while back and i think it wasn't it was like the, the ultimate moment of despair. So you know what, let's do Afkar Salah. You've been doing them throughout school and high school, things were then, maybe if I do them, I'll feel better. And from within Afkar Salah is, you know, SubhanAllah a hundred times, Alhamdulillah a hundred times or whatever. So you were sitting there, Alhamdulillah, 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 SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah, And it was like a, you know, mantra, but it didn't really make sense. And then that's when I said, you know what, let, let them, let them matter. Let, let them, like do it, do it consciously. And again, it was very impulsive, but my general approach to life is let's do everything consciously. So the point is let's do it consciously. And the idea was when I do the 100, alhamdulillah, each one should be for something. It's not مش عبث, مش, مش حمد الله, حمد الله, حمد الله, حمد الله, like, like let's, let's let it make count. So you, I'd, I'd, I'd write down a list of 100 things. And they can be very stupid things. I have a pillow, I have a blanket, I have a pair of shoes, I have a car, then wife and four kids by that time is... That's five. And then, you know, eyes, two pairs, hands, two pairs, legs, two pairs, feet, then five fingers and five toes, that's 20. And you'd list them and then just be conscious in counting these 100 things. And I did that, again, impulsively and consciously for the longest time. It kept on going. It kept on going. And I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing and why I was doing it. But maybe it was, you know, the person who's drowning would catch on to a hay. There's that Arabic saying. Um, and and that, was, that was the hay. That was that, okay, like, these are the things that are working. Uh, these are the things that are good. And even in the ultimate, you know, I had a bed to sleep on. Like, you can always find something that you have that nobody does. It sounds and like I think, a list of reasons why... I should go on for another day. Yes, it very impulsively. But that went on and it went on for for a very long time. And I I always amounted uh, I always amounted down to that because of that rewired my brain. And it was it was to an extent that when when I grab when I grab a glass of water, 
I'm I'm so conscious that I, I like I am conscious of the movement that my hand is being extended, and my fingers are going around the glass, and I'm pulling it back up to me. And every one of these is a moment of gratitude. Yes. Um, that's that's mindfulness in action. That's um, yeah. that's mindful gratitude exercise. That's mindfulness in action in terms of I am aware of every movement my body's making. I mean, just being um, intentional and, yes. and being in the moment rather than being in. And it was all very coincidental. I don't um, think there was a coincidence. I, I honestly believe that sometimes that there's a sound within you that knows what you know, what's right for you. Mm. And that voice is, is within you. And it, all it needs is for you to listen to it. The, the thing that happened along with that was the, the coming of the following summer. My wife and kids, they go to where her parents live um, and I'm left alone. And for the following uh, six weeks, I was, I was alone at home. I used to, well, work in the summers uh, drops considerably, but it was also, it was also intentional solitude. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, under the pretense that I had that social thing going on that I didn't want to be a part of because I, I didn't share this, but this was one of the low points as well is that when I was walking and I saw them in a public space and I hid and that's when that, you know, that was, it was shortly after what happened and there were, there were, there was a whole group, but they were amongst them. And part of the betrayal I felt is that the majority of the group, when they heard the story was like, we the narrative was that you need to grow up and get over it. Um, and I think nobody was willing to admit that there, you know, there was something seriously harmful happening or happened. But they're like, you know, just brush it off. You know, there's the cohesion of the group that we need to maintain. And there's that, you know, wolf pack mentality. But that six weeks... In psychology, we call it the group think. It's a phenomenon. When a group, uh, oh, okay. when a group gets together, um, it, it always happens. And you see it in politics. You see it in every mm -hmm. religion where we... It starts as a group and then all of a sudden all voices of dissent, all voices of uh, this, um, um, of um, um, any kind of different opinion is mm. suppressed because the idea is the group exists with harmony. And as long as we maintain the harmony of the group, as the, the stronger that we are. So any voices like that gets shut out, it gets pushed away, gets, yes, yes. and you see that, you see that in every, in politics, yeah, yeah. in religion, yeah. in friendships, in families. Yeah, yeah. For, 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 for the, for that six weeks stretch of time, um, maybe I should have said this in the beginning, but I've always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. There's one thing that I always wanted to be. But for that, for that uh, six weeks, I was, uh, I was very methodological, in, in the approach of how I plan my day. And it's, it's amazing because a lot of this information later on surfaced when we were doing an episode on Mishmishibshib with Luna about kids who thrived in situations of war. Uh, there were three factors that were in common and they were um, unconditional love from one entity, uh, a very clear schedule on what to expect during the day and uh, a hobby that is being pursued for a goal. And that can be something as trivial as, you know, not trivial, but something as I want to be a photographer and have my own, you know, exhibition or whatever. Uh, but for the whole six weeks, there was a lot of solitude. 
the pra- the, the, the mindful uh, gratitude thing was still going on, but the day was, um, you know, work from 8 to 12, and then I'd write from 12 to 4, and then I'd work out from 4 to 5, and then I'd uh, read a book from 5 to 8, and then watch a movie from 8 to 10, and then go to sleep. And that I did that religiously, ritually, every day, for six weeks. And I don't know, just magic happens, magic happens. There, there was something magical that happened. And I, and I think later on it made sense because, see, optimism is linked to... Um, being optimistic is linked to being grateful. Because if you're happy with what you have now, then you expect something better to happen. And that just the whole thing just sort of um, came together, uh, came together very well. Only the gratitude. I think the gratitude helps a lot. The meditation, I mean, even more and more, you learn about a lot of things that we do that are meditative, but it's not sitting mm. still and, and doing that because that's one yes. type of meditation. That's not all types. So that I think that played a factor. You know, people are always surprised when on your first session to any psychologist, like that's all over the internet now. Any psychologist that will tell you have a routine, bedtime, wake up time, mm. exercise but- time, and eating time, and that will improve your mental health tremendously. Um, yeah. And it's underestimated the effect that this has on on people, but. It really helps when the body is 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 in a better state and it's well taken care of. That mm. it's not it's not like you're taking care of the whole package. You only have to look at what's going on psychologically. So the burden is becomes a lot less. And plus, it takes a lot of emotional energy to to go through your day when you're struggling. That's not. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. you've been through it. Lots of people have been through it. I've been through it really uh when you're struggling the day becomes a very waking up in the morning becomes a heavy thing Mm. when you're taking care of your body in that sense of i'm providing you with exercise i'm providing you with a routine enough sleep enough food enough not really introducing a lot of toxins it's you're helping it go through the motions of that difficulty it's like Mm. it's it's like you're sick but you're not physically sick. You're emotionally at the moment. You're struggling with something emotionally. Sure. So you're sick. So you, you, you really need to take care of all the other aspects. And that's, that's, that's sometimes what we, psychologists say, self-care. That's what we mean. We don't mean mm. go get a pedicure every day, but just set, yes, a, yes, set, yes. set a little bit of a structure. Help your body. Give it, give it what it needs. Help yourself. Give it what it needs. Okay. Um, so there's, there's a couple more things that helped. Uh, extensively Uh, but just to be clear I'm spiraling again and I'm spiraling again uh, because of COVID yeah Uh, because in this in this in this period uh, I lost 20 kilos worth of weight I've uh, started several personal projects that have been on hold that six weeks by the way I I, I wrote a book Uh, it didn't it didn't get published yet it just needs to be brushed up but I got distracted by a number of other things uh, but COVID came, I gained all the weight I lost. Um, the whole routine that I had for myself was out the window. Um, I lost a main source of income that I had. My kids uh, stayed at home uh, and, and are still home. Uh, you know, in Abu Dhabi, it's still on and off every now and then. They barely do a week in school, you know, before the whole thing uh, goes haywire. 
We're going through major shift in our lives. We're actually relocating to another country. It's all a mess. My my food went, you know, down the drain. My sleep pattern is is all over the place. I went back to smoking. I went, uh, you know, and and the feelings of uh, being unhappy, the feelings of um, you're unworthy, you're a failure, getting work done, something that takes an hour will take three days. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of it. Um, and I know exactly, and again, like no, you, you're not healed. It's a process and it's easy for you to spiral back if the conditions change. It's the best way to explain it is that you're a bottle of water with some, you know, sand in it. When something happens in your life, somebody's shaking the bottle. The sand, you know, will all come back up again and then you can't see clearly. So, so I'll mention this here, but we'll get back to this a bit later. I actually need to stop you because I have a session. Thank you for tuning into our podcast, Kun, The Journey to Be. Tune in to next week for the continuation of this episode with, with Wissam, where we will focus on the healing process. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Kun, The Journey to Be. You can reach out to us on Instagram, on, at Kun with Reem, or via email, kun at bpsychologycenter.com.